What happened when a group of New York newsies decided to stand up against newspaper titans Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst at the end of the 19th century? This episode of Footnoting History is all about the event that inspired a Disney cult classic musical film and stage production. Hey everyone, Christine here to talk to you about Newsies and their famous for being musicalized strike. When I say that the Newsies strike of 1899 has been an interest of mine for over 30 years now, I am not lying. In 1992, my mother took me to see Disney's newest live action musical film. I was seven years old and absolutely mesmerized as the film titled Newsies played on the screen. The story, its gorgeous music, and the phenomenal cast spoke to my soul. And of course, the budding historian in me needed to know more about the real life strike. Well, here I am approximately 1 million years later, to talk to you about that very thing. I promise, though, that you do not need to be a diehard fan of the film like I am, or even have seen it, or the subsequent stage production, to follow this episode. Also, one quick reminder, captioned versions of this and every episode are available on both our YouTube channel and footnotinghistory.com. At the end of the 19th century, New York City and its environs had a pretty robust newspaper industry. It consisted of papers like Joseph Pulitzer's World and William Randolph Hearst's Journal, alongside other titles like The Sun, The Tribune, and The Times. In the 1890s, one prominent way people purchased their newspapers was via newsies. That is, people who walked around hawking the papers. Newsies, who are our focus today, would purchase papers in bulk from a publication's distributors. Then, they would sell those papers to readers for a designated markup. They kept the money they made from sales, and since they sold their papers for more than they paid for them, it meant that if they sold enough, they earned a profit. It wasn't necessarily a job that would make a newsie rich, but it was certainly one that many turned to in order to make ends meet. In 1898, a burst of news changed the game for publishers and newsies alike. The Spanish-American War began. Although the details of the war are too complex and require too much nuance for me to cover in this episode, I have posted links on footnotinghistory.com about the war for those wanting more information. For our purposes, you need to know that in the twilight of Spain's imperial era, there was great unrest in places like Cuba, where revolutionaries wanted independence instead of Spanish colonial rule. By the late 1890s, the U.S. was increasingly concerned about protecting its own interests in the region. When, in February of 1898, the USS Maine suffered an explosion that sank it in Cuba's Havana Harbor, there were instant journalistic rumblings which weren't necessarily based on truth, that Spain was to blame. Things escalated, and in April, the United States declared war against Spain. The conflict went on until the Treaty of Paris was signed that December, with Spain on the losing side. At first glance, it absolutely seems like this conflict should have little to do with newsies in New York. 
except the impact of the war on the news industry was huge. The outbreak of the war coincided with a period of news publishing rife with so-called yellow journalism. Yellow journalism is when newspapers or other publications don't care half as much about facts and legitimacy as they do about creating headlines that make people gasp and open their wallets to buy a paper and read more. It's sort of like a 19th century version of clickbait or tabloid headlines. What they printed didn't have to be true so long as it increased sales. The outbreak of the war combined with the yellow journalism of the time for a circulation war, as newspaper publishers competed against each other to race to the top of the sales list, with or without their journalistic integrity intact. In his coverage of the era, historian Vincent DiGirolamo states that during the Spanish-American War, papers like the World and Journal could issue up to 30 or 40 editions daily, even if there wasn't really all that much new to report. Newsies, of course, sought to make as much money off of this as possible, often joining in the yellow journalism mindset and saying whatever had to be said to sell the papers. Fans of Newsies on screen might recognize this concept. Early in the film, established newsy Jack shouts to potential customers that there was a giant fire on Ellis Island, causing new newsy David to look for the article. And he discovers that Jack was seriously inflating the story. It was really about a trash fire scaring a bunch of seagulls. While some newsies saw an increase in their profits during the war, the publishers weren't so lucky. Pulitzer and Hearst spent so much money investing in printing extra editions and disseminating them that keeping up with the circulation fight actually made them lose money. As you would expect, these businessmen wanted to both win the circulation competition and stop their financial losses. They decided to increase the cost of papers to the newsies. The shift went from 50 cents to 60 cents per 100 papers, which is a lot in an era when papers commonly sold to the public for around one cent, and which would cut into the newsies' profit for each paper sold, as they would have to pay more to publishers for the same amount of papers, and therefore sell more papers to make the same amount. This didn't thrill the newsies. Naturally, they tried to resist it with a bit of a boycott, but nothing that made a dent or caused a change. Despite their unhappiness, the price change was soon reluctantly accepted. As long as papers continued to be pumped out and able to be sold at increased rates, this change could be tolerated. However, the Spanish-American War and news it generated did not last forever. Once it concluded at the end of 1898, that meant so did the war-driven increase in daily paper sales. 1899 did not have the same profits for Newsies that the prior year did. And by that summer, the Newsies of New York were really feeling the pain from that price hike. Unlike in the film Newsies, in real life, there is no distinct moment universally acknowledged as the catalyst for the strike of the summer of 1899. However, an event in Long Island City on July 18th is often cited as its first recorded incident. It turns out that there, 
On top of the already long known price increase, the Newsies discovered that a delivery man was cheating them by selling them bundles containing less papers than promised. Outraged, they tipped the dishonest delivery man's wagon, ran him off, and took his papers. Fed up now with the way they had been duped and treated, the Newsies began to press to have that 10 cents wholesale price increase reversed. Unlike when they initially voiced displeasure at the time of the price hike, but gave in, now the Newsies organized and went on a proper strike, specifically against Pulitzer's World and Hearst's Journal. This brings us to three important questions. How do we know what we know about the strike? Who were these striking Newsies? And what happened once the strike began? I'm going to answer them in order. First, how do we know what we know about the strike? The source question is one of my dear friend and co-producer Kristen's favorites, so I added this bit especially for her. The narrative that we have today of what went down comes mostly from the primary sources of contemporary newspapers and Don Seitz, Pulitzer's business manager. Learning about the newspaper strike from newspapers is kind of great. You see, Pulitzer and Hearst were not thrilled with the situation, so they banned the world and journal from talking about it. However, other papers relished the idea of covering the fight of the newsies against their competitors. As for sites, well, in Joseph Pulitzer's later years, he ran his publishing empire from Maine. Plagued by ill health, he left the day-to-day operations to others and it fell to sites to send him reports, which included important strike information. Combining the newspaper coverage and the correspondence between Seitz and Pulitzer forms the bedrock of the narrative of the strike as we know it. Luckily, we can answer the question of who were the striking newsies from these sources, although the negative thing is that there are no hard statistics to draw from. We do know that the striking newsies were predominantly male and in their teens or early 20s at a push. As far as race and religion are concerned, the newsies were certainly not a monolith. Extrapolating from their names in papers and arrest records, stay tuned for more on that second bit, newsies were white, black, Jewish, sometimes disabled. Basically, they came from all sorts of backgrounds and life experiences. Newsies also came in two types those who did not go to school and sold papers all day, and those who did go to school but joined the others after to hawk later editions. When screenwriters Bob Sudiker and Noni White created the script of Disney's film Newsies, they plucked from history. Characters like Racetrack, David, Boots, Mush, Kid Blink, Crutchy, and my absolute favorite film character, Spot Conlon, all had names belonging to or inspired by real people, even if their personalities, actions, and contributions to the strike were often severely changed or explicitly fabricated to serve the film's plot. Other real names that didn't make it into the film included Bob the Indian, Abe Newman, Warhorse Brenna, and Black Diamond. The Newsies often had distinct depictions in the papers and also often specific titles. For example, we know that my beloved Spot Conlon was a 14-year-old boy in July of 1899 who wore pink suspenders and called himself the District Master Workboy of Brooklyn, 
We also know that a strike leader named Kid Blink was 18, had red hair, that his real name was Louis Belletti, and that his nickname implied that he had a bad eye. This leads us to the third and biggest question. What happened? The newsies of the New York City area had an informal but critically strong social network. They were likely to know many of their peers as their paths crossed or regular selling areas overlapped. Plus, since they were the ones literally bringing the news to the people, they were well informed. There's no way that the fact that the country was undergoing a labor power shift and strikes were occurring all over was lost on them. Heck, there was already a streetcar strike going on in the area right around this same time. When the Newsies decided to join together and withhold their services in order to try and get the price changed back, they had examples to model themselves after, and they adopted a multi-prong approach. They formed a union, spread the word, weren't afraid of violence, and embraced spectacle. For the Newsies, forming a union made sense. Mind you, it wasn't the sort of union you might think of today. Like, when I joined my unions, there were qualifying criteria to meet, entrance fees to pay, and always, always regular dues. In this case, it was more of a statement of solidarity. The Newsies organized themselves, discussing plans of action and creating a committee on discipline and rules for engagement, like don't injure any police officers. It started in Lower Manhattan, and much like in the film and subsequent stage productions, spread outward to Brooklyn, Long Island City, New Jersey, etc. I don't think, based on what I've read on the topic over the years, that it's an exaggeration to say that at the height of the strike, it was a multi-state event. Newsies as far away as Connecticut, Massachusetts, and Rhode Island participated. The Newsies were found in all corners of the region, not only telling people that they were boycotting, but often openly harassing scabs, that is, those who crossed the strike by selling the forbidden papers. They often banked on the fact that the police force, dealing with things like the other strike, was sometimes spread thin and maybe couldn't come down too hard on them. An example of this can be found in an Evening Post article, which reported, quote, Several strikers attacked a youngster on Frankfurt Street this morning, accusing him of being false to the union. They gave him a severe beating with sticks and clubs. He was rescued by a policeman and taken to a drugstore where a few wounds on his head and face were dressed. Finally, he was put on a Third Avenue car and sent home. The attacking strikers were too quick for the police. As Kid Blink said, the cops couldn't run fast enough. In this case, they appeared to have gotten away with it. But that doesn't mean that that was always true. We know, and here's where those arrest records come from, that there were numerous occasions of newsies being fined or sent to places like the juvenile asylum for their actions during the strike. Plus, the scabs weren't above being armed themselves, so it's not a shock that things got dicey fairly often. This, of course, doesn't mean that the Newsies didn't have lines they wouldn't cross. Aside from scabs, Kid Blink once talked to the press about frustration with women who would sell the boycotted papers. Although these women would pretend to support the strike, 
When a customer asked for the world or journal, the woman would take them out from beneath their shawls and sell them like contraband. Nevertheless, Kid Blink explained, quote, a feller can't soak a lady and you can't get at them women's scab papes without soaking them. We'll have to let them along. It wasn't all union meetings and violent clashes. There were also moments of spectacle, the biggest moment of which was the gigantic Newsies rally. Yes, fans of Disney's Newsies, the rally you've seen on screen and stage was something that actually happened. An estimated 5,000 Newsies descended on New Irving Hall in late July to rally about the cause, with less than half able to make it inside the building. It was such a big event that even local politicians showed up. There was singing and there were speeches, not just from Manhattan Newsy leaders, but from others as well, like Racetrack Higgins, who headed the Brooklyn contingent and was regularly featured in Brooklyn's coverage of the strike. Anything you can imagine would be said to keep strike morale high and motivate the Newsies to stick together and stay strong was said and shouted during this gigantic gathering. The result of all of this was that the public largely ended up being on the Newsies' side, often joining in the boycott and donating to the cause instead of purchasing the World or Journal. Pulitzer and Hertz's initial attempts to ignore the strike and brush off its leaders didn't stop it from having an impact, since, after all, there was a regular visible presence of the striking Newsies around the city and other New York papers were happy to keep fanning the flames. Pulitzer and Hearst didn't like it when they saw the public was taking the strike seriously. They weren't reluctant to call in favors and seek police help to break up strike locations and protect their scabs. Still, soon even advertisers were taking note of the situation, reaching out with concerns. And if there's one thing that is sure to worry a media business person, it's their advertisers questioning the situation. Pulitzerhurst knew that something had to be done. The strike had gone on for nearly two weeks, and it was an increasingly bad look. They tried to get others to sell their papers, but few were willing to cross the picket line. It is believed that the publishers made the decision to try and buy off the strike leaders, in particular Kid Blink and David Simmons. The extent of their success in doing this is debatable. It has been reported, for example, that Kid Blink had on a whole new outfit and both boys told their colleagues that a settlement was made. The Newsies put the two on a makeshift trial, accusing them of turning against the cause and taking bribes, eventually letting them off, but bullying them and removing them from any position of power for the remainder of the strike. The strike, though, wasn't going to continue for long. Although the Newsies Union did say no to the paper's offer of charging them 55 cents per 100 papers instead of 60, this did signal the beginning of the end of the strike. However, the strike didn't end in a Hollywood-esque glorious manner. It was this. Pulitzer and Hearst would not roll back the price for 100 papers, but the world and journal would take back any newspapers the Newsies failed to sell for a full refund. This way, while they still had to pay more than they wanted to do their jobs, at least they wouldn't take a loss on any papers they didn't sell. 
It may not have been as exciting an ending as is seen on film, but it appears to have been considered enough. In August, the Newsies were back at work, selling the world in journal instead of fighting against them. The Newsies' story, perhaps due to its only partly victorious end, flew largely under the historical radar in decades to come. In the mid-1980s, when David Nassau published Children of the City at Work and at Play, he gave a detailed narrative of the strike, positing that it might actually be the first detailed narrative in a modern book. More recently, Vincent DiGirolamo published a mammoth work on the history of newsboys called Cry in the News that also spends a nice amount of time talking about the strike and is a super valuable resource. It was a New York Times review of Children of the City, which mentioned the strike, that gave screenwriters Bob Sudiker and Noni White the idea for what became Disney's musical film Newsies, released in 1992. The film was a box office flop, but became a beloved classic to the children who were its primary audience. Nearly 20 years later, thanks to the lobbying of those film fans, Disney decided to adapt it for the stage, primarily with the objective of creating a licensable product for high school and community theater productions. With a creative team that was a mixture of new and old contributors that viewed this as an opportunity to change significant elements from the film, it became a very different experience on stage than it was on screen, with some different characters, major music changes, and new or altered plot points that kind of diminished the actual focus on the strike itself. Plus, just a few months ago, the stage version premiered in London. No matter what version of Newsies one encounters now, and I will always pick the film first because it is my favorite film of all time, one will find elements of the historical strike present. It is my hope that the story, in all of its various forms, continues to inspire people to look into the real history, just like it did for me over 30 years ago. Thank you for joining me for this episode. Definitely check out footnotinghistory.com for a list of the sources I use. A hearty thanks, as always, goes out to our patrons and our Kofi supporters for helping us keep this ship sailing. And of course, never forget, the best stories are in the footnotes. <laughs>